every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Palmer Houchins, VP of Brand Marketing and Communications at G2. G2 is the largest and most trusted software marketplace helping 60 million people every year make smarter software decisions based on authentic peer reviews. Previously, Palmer served as a senior marketing leader and G2 customer at MailChimp. He was also the VP of Marketing at CallRail, where he led demand generation, brand communications, content, and customer marketing teams. On this episode, Palmer shares his insights into why your brand is your organizational glue, the consumerization of B2B marketing, and how transparency gains consumer trust. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by Qualified. Qualified is the pipeline generation platform for revenue teams that use Salesforce. You can intelligently grow your pipeline by understanding the signals, buying intent, and having real-time conversations right on your website. You can learn more at qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Palmer Houchins and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today I am joined by a special guest, Palmer. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining. Really excited to have you on the show. We had Amanda, the CMO of G2, on a previous episode, and we wanted more G2 action coming back at us. And who better than you to talk about brand, how it relates to demand and marketing and some cool stuff that you all have done and are continuing to do at G2 on the state of enterprise buying, which is super important to all marketers. So let's get into it. What was your first job in marketing? Oh, my first job in marketing, if we want to call it a full-time job, was right after college. I joined a ill-fated music technology startup where all of us got laid off after a year. But that was a good lesson, a good lesson in marketing and something that I tell folks it's great to have happen at age 23 versus 33 or 43. But before that, I had kind of dabbled in digital marketing through music promotion. I kind of did some independent concert work in, in college, and that was kind of my first foray into marketing and really just kind of gravitated. This was kind of the early early to middle part of the 2000s, gravitated towards the digital marketing side. A lot of properties that we don't necessarily talk about as much these days, like the MySpaces of the world, but those fun areas to sort of cut your teeth in digital marketing back in the day. Indeed, cutting the teeth. And now tell us a little bit about your role at G2. Yeah, so I'm the vice president of brand marketing and communications. So I lead all of our brand marketing and communications as well as all of our events marketing. So anything from sort of our in-house creative team creating all sorts of marketing assets down to a few front-end devs as well as project managers, copywriters, then on to the events marketing side. We we do a number of different events from kind of like third-party sponsorships, conferences, that sort of thing. But being that we're G2, we have a, a unique 
review booth program where we actually go out to our customers' events and help them generate reviews on site. And then the last portion there is just our PR and social media. So everything from kind of broader corporate communications to how we activate on social media. I've got a small but mighty team that helps run that. Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with in the nest, are we not? This is where you can go and feel honest and trusted and share those deepest, darkest marketing secrets. So give us a quick refresher. What does G2 do? So G2 is the world's largest and most trusted software marketplace. So we essentially help connect software buyers, which really can be just about anyone these days. Anyone who needs to buy a business software can come to G2 and learn across our one point, I guess, 8 million reviews that we have across the site to sort of better figure out what software is going to fit their needs. So our origin story is sort of our founders about 10 years ago were wondering, hey, I can go on something like TripAdvisor and find more information about a $100 hotel room than I can about a $100,000 piece of software. G2 was born out of that as a better way for folks to get insights and information on B2B software. We've grown quite a bit since then. And also, in addition to the software buyer side, we help software vendors, software sellers, software companies connect with that audience of software buyers, whether it's through a buyer intent offering or just helping them generate reviews and get attention across our marketplace. Well, since we had Amanda on and now Mm -hmm. the Caspian Studios G2 is up and running. I mean, I talked about this on the previous episode with Amanda. I mean, I love G2. I use it all the time. It's crazy to think about a world without G2. It's just crazy to think without having reviews, without having this proof, it was just word of mouth. It was just, hey, what are you using? How did your implementation go? And honestly, it's a little scary for marketers because I think we had a little bit more control 10 years ago. I, I was going to say, that's sort of where my head went, and not to put our sales brethren on the line, but I think before G2, you had a lot of smoke and For mirrors sure. from different software reps there. And I'd like to think that that we've helped bring a little bit more, shine a little bit more visibility on folks, especially earlier in the process when you're trying to figure out if, hey, I need a marketing automation software, what should I look at? G2 is a way for folks to call through some peer reviews and find maybe the two or three that they actually want to engage with the sales team on. So it is a big shift. And I think was somewhat slow to come to the to the B2B software landscape, but I think it's proven to be very valuable, especially as the way that we buy software is evolving and changing. Yeah, it is. It is changing. And marketers, you have to adapt. I mean, it's it's one of these things. We're thinking about this at, at Caspian recently because we're, we're trying to get our reviews up. You know, we have 40 plus customers. They have extremely nice things to say about us, but are those things living on the internet other than on our website, Right. And that's the thing that's tough when you think about marketing your product in any way or creating demand in any way, you want those customer stories out there. It is your best marketing and having those things live in one place like G2, obviously, is critical. I I think it helps shine a light. A lot of times folks would have those great customer stories buried in a sales deck. That's, you know, you're well on your way to purchasing something before you even see that. And what we're helping do is like, 
yeah, keep those there, have them there. They're going to solidify any of those deals that you might have coming. But let's get a little bit earlier in the process and showcase those as folks are sort of maybe just not even in market for your software, but just perusing, you know, taking a look at a broader category. Those customer stories and that customer voice can be something that becomes really tangible for folks as they're researching. Obviously, working in brand, you talked about events, you talked about some of the higher level marketing initiatives that you're doing. How do you think about brand marketing and getting G2 customers and prospects in the door? I think brand marketing is a little bit different at every company because it really is tied to what your brand identity is and, and sort of what the goals of your marketing will be or is. You know, past companies' brand can have a very design-centric, you know, it's like, it's the look and feel. It's sort of like how we come across. And that's absolutely one part of brand. But I think something that's interesting that I really try to bring to life from the G2 side is there's an element of, for lack of a better term, thought leadership that goes into sure. brand. Like we we want G2 to be this rock solid resource for folks as they're trying to identify not only buyers and sellers getting connected, but what's happening in the broader software landscape. Like what trends are there? What should I be aware of? What should I know that's changing? And so a lot of my brand lens is how do we activate a lot of the experts that we have in-house or even some of the data that we uniquely have and sort of bring that to life. So that can be as small as a hey, we'd love to jump in and add some commentary to, to this Adweek article about buyer intent. It could be as broad as a first-party piece of, of research like the software buying behavior report. You know, all points in between really sort of start to encapsulate what brand is and what it can mean. Um, I think that the, the best brand marketers know sort of the unique lane that they have to lean into and they go with that. You know, I spent several years at MailChimp before G2 and MailChimp was a company where we could lean into that, bring some life, frankly, just like funness to the world of B2B software. And uh, every company is a little bit different. Doing brand at G2, it comes to life in a different way, but just equally as effective, hopefully. MailChimp, famous for the most famous podcast ad of all time, the ads that ran in serial. Exactly. That's a lightning in a bottle moment. It won't be able to happen twice. And we certainly did not, if you had asked us six months before that happened, do we see this being the most viral podcast ad of all time? Absolutely not. It was a happy accident. Yeah. I talk about this like portfolio approach to marketing. Beth Comstock mm -hmm. famously talked about this idea of like the 10% that are kind of like your moonshot marketing, right? That you're like, I don't even know what's going on. I don't even know where they're spending it. But if it leads to nothing, then it leads to nothing. But if it leads to kind of like a moonshot, then it does. And I think that there's so few teams that place those type of moonshot bets. And like that, those serial ads were the perfect example of a moonshot bet, right? It's like, if this does good, our ads are going to go really far. If it explodes into being yeah. the most popular podcast like ever at the time, then those ads are paid for the entire campaign and then the next 20 with that. Yeah, I wish I could say that we saw it as like a moonshot, but we were literally at the time. I mean, this was what, 2014, so eight years ago. We just saw podcasts as a very cost-efficient way to reach a, a large audience. Podcasts that we know today were not what they were like then. And it's like, great, we can we can sort of build that brand awareness pretty cost-efficiently because we were the small bootstrapped company and we just happened to luck into a moonshot opportunity there. I think that there's 
a lesson in that for all marketers, A, being scrappy and looking for opportunities wherever they might present themselves. And we were trying to do that very cost efficiently. And I think that's something that a lot of startup marketers can certainly sympathize with. But it's an area for us where, as I sort of look back on it, we wanted to make sure that that our marketing, to go to your sort of portfolio terminology there, was was holistic, that, that we were feeding the top of the funnel and the bottom of the funnel. We were really keen on driving brand awareness. At the same time, we had a very strong sort of approach to Google ads, and we're really trying to capture that demand as, as quickly as and efficiently as we could. I think that's something that's important for brand marketers to kind of keep in mind is where's brand fitting into your overall sort of acquisition or, or demand gen strategy. It's really silly to like break up brand. It's all cohesive, right? Especially in B2B where it's right. like the rise of ABM and all that sort of stuff. I like the term like the brand halo effect, but this idea that by the time you are searching for the solution that you're like, haven't I heard MailChimp a bunch of times? Like, where did, wasn't that I on mean, that pod? Like, weren't they saying all the funny stuff? Like, that's the sort of thing where you're like, wherever it is that you're putting your information, I assume that's why comms is in your purview as well. It's brand and events, which in a lot of companies are a demand gen function. So it's interesting how interspersed brand has kind of transformed into this brand, comms, events, all of these like experiential things. There's paid acquisition that, that goes in there too. It's all interconnected. It's really interesting because I think a lot of folks look rightly so as, as B2B sort of being the inverse of B2C. And, and certainly most any software decision out there is not going to be a Coke versus Pepsi decision. But to me, that all that just makes what you're talking about, that brand awareness and that familiarity and affinity, even more important because it's like maybe once a year, you're going to have that decision about what email marketing platform do we use? What's the marketing automation software or CRM that we want to onboard? And so to me, that just where you can afford it and where you can actually activate it, it just makes it that much more important to have that there. It gives you such a leg up on on your competitors if you've got that built in already when someone's searching. And that comes to life in, in any number of ways, whether it's events, whether it's podcasts, whether it's just traditional comms and, and PR. But I think folks, good brand marketers are partnering with their demand gen colleagues to figure out, well, what's our way in there? What's our opportunity to kind of go build that out? I do think as someone who sort of worked in the B2B software space for 10 going on 11 years now, it's been nice to see that evolve and sort of that thinking crop in to where it used to just be plug, plug, plug away some very boring B2B marketing or just everything gated, everything, uh, everything's a white paper. And it's like, well, I don't know that we're necessarily engaging or creating the sort of reach or familiarity or even a, a awareness and affinity that we, that we could or yeah, should be doing. I think it boils down to that we just don't make enough stuff that people love. I talk about remarkable marketing means you have to actually like get the person to talk about it to someone else. Like it has to spark a conversation and there's so little marketing out there that we strive to create a remarkable experience. That's why events are always so good and they'll forever be good is because you talk to people and you talk about it and you meet people and there's interconnection there. And this is a good segue into the state of enterprise buying. So you all, you'll publish this report yeah. last year you're working on next year. So we're in between reports here. But what is the state of enterprise buying? Like how should marketers think about it? What What's changing from where you all sit? To put it in context, we published this last sep September and had some great insights that we gleaned about a year ago. We're about to field another one. So it'll be very interesting to see if some of the trends that we identified last year hold true this year. The long story short is we are seeing the 
The consumerization of B2B is absolutely happening. You're seeing the buying cycle get shorter and shorter year over year. You're also seeing a reluctance for folks to engage with sales teams until almost to the point where like a decision has been made that we want to onboard this vendor. It's like sales is just the folks that want to help me buy or actually seal the deal versus we're seeing folks turn to other resources, whether it be websites, whether it be uh, peer review sites like G2, or even just broader offerings across their peer set and elsewhere. It's a very interesting time for B2B software. I think we've always, we've long thought that the sort of consumerization of B2B was happening. And now I think there's some data to really back that up. Another area that started to kind of bleed through in some of the data that we saw is really the product-led growth mentality is you can see it taking hold on B2B. You know, folks who really want to try it before they buy it, they want to get in, actually use the product before they commit to a two-year-long contract. And I suspect we'll see more. What will be interesting to watch is if coming out of what we saw through the pandemic, was that accelerating some of these trends? Are they going to continue on that same acceleration pattern or do we see them slow down alongside the slowdown that we're seeing in kind of the broader economy? I don't know, but these are all sort of hypotheses that we want to bring to life and see what our panel of about a thousand software buyers will tell us this summer. Yeah, I am super interested. We got to bring you back after you all release those findings, because I do feel like it's changing a ton. And I think that on the type of company that you are, it it changes a ton. I think it was Ben Horowitz who wrote a paper years ago about this idea of like, what size group is purchasing the software that you're buying? And like, if it's an HR software, your whole company is purchasing the software, right? Every single person Mm -hmm. is a stakeholder. Whereas if it's, you know, a developer tool, it could be literally one developer that wants to use that. And I think that where you see this product-led growth piece and how people are selling and marketing this, and this is very core to ABM as well, is this idea that if you're on the smaller end, if you're on those smaller team levels, you can do PLG, you can do that stuff. If you're on the bigger end and it's a massive company transformation or these like huge product implementation, there's no way to try it before you buy. You have to commit. Then that decision and that process and the executive briefing center and all that sort of stuff, then maybe that is more of the route you go. And I think that that is super fascinating because that's not one person doing a little bit of research. That's 10 people in the room. We ask at this show, we say, who is your buying committee? Because everything is a committee now, unless it's PLG. And then you go that direction. Couldn't agree more with you there. We saw that in the data from last year's report. I think what you're seeing with PLG and some of these great example, like a developer tool, you know, that, that ICP, never they never really wanted to talk to a salesperson to begin with. They wanted the tool, they wanted to onboard it and go use it and sort of that land and expand mentality. When you think about what's happening in some, like an enterprise HR software, again, great, great example there. A lot more kind of hands in the cookie jar there and a lot more cooks and cooks in the kitchen to sort of mix metaphors. But I think what was interesting, we saw the buying committees are getting bigger and bigger. And that data, that was something we asked about in the, in the report. They're getting bigger and bigger, yet the time to purchase is getting shorter and shorter, which is a really interesting sort of development there. I think that would be a little bit counterintuitive, but I think, frankly, a lot of B2B SaaS has just improved what that buying experience is like. Again, we're seeing folks engage at a later period with sales team. So it's like closer to to when you want to kind of close or solidify that deal. And you need more stakeholders involved to figure out whether or not this works. And it's less like, when can we get everyone in the room together to talk about it? And more, how do we keep that pushing things forward? So it's interesting to see how 
that can move in that direction. We'll be really curious to, to watch that trend I, as well. I love that. And I think it's so interesting because what we've seen at Caspian, and we're working predominantly with enterprise companies and B2B marketing teams, podcasts and video series and stuff like that. It's a really important piece of your marketing channel. And it's so high touch because the customers and all that stuff and many of the shows like CEOs host them, the CEO of the company. So it's obviously a very like high level initiative. But what is super interesting that we've seen is from a committee perspective, the CMO, VP of comms, maybe the CEO, the host, you know, whoever's the show, you get these people kind of floating in and out of meetings now. And it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm in my car and I'm doing whatever. So the big formal meeting where everybody's in the room and we're sitting at a giant long table, that sort of stuff feels really gone. And again, CEOs popping in like, hey, sorry, I'm five minutes late. Like, I just wanted to listen in. I'm driving to work. And you're like, what? Like This is the CEO of a $5 billion company that just wants to pop in on this meeting for a few minutes. The pitch that you gave, all that stuff, all that information is no longer all the marketing work that you got to that point. All that stuff is just, okay, now you have seven minutes when someone's in their car. Right. I think back to pre-pandemic days, they feel like they were a very different paradigm. And to your point exactly of where so much of getting a campaign launch was like playing scheduled Jenga with a bunch yep. of executives. It's like, I know I've got to get in front of the CMO. I probably need to brief our CEO. Can I get the VP of product marketing on board? And it's just so refreshing to say, hey, we're going to connect on this. We'll record the meeting and share it out afterwards if you need to sync on anything. And just these little things that I think help us get out of some of the bureaucratic necessities that were there. So it's interesting to see that play out, you know, outside of the marketing world within very cross-functional buying committees as well, too. Well, I think the other piece there is a very G2-centric, peer review-centric thing, which is the sales time is shortening is because all you need to do is show a slide that says, here's the people who bought this who are kind of like you. Here's a screenshot of G2 of how they look. It's kind of like that with peer reviews now, right? It's like, yeah, this company is yeah. a 4.7 on G2. Let's just pull the trigger. We've been able to shine a light in that area or just the collective sort of peer review side. I think there's still a role for analysts and those companies to play as well. But you've got peer review sites. You've got this idea of sort of like dark social where you can kind of be connected to anyone at any time. You're probably like me. I'm in multiple yep. Slack, Facebook groups where we talk about different marketing things. And, and those are just like great resources of peers that I can get feedback within 24 hours and 24-7 versus, well, I'm going to wait and see if the Magic Quadrant's updated this quarter and maybe get information for that or wait for this agency that I hired to vet some things to see what their report said. I think we've just got a lot more at our fingertips than we we really appreciate. I think it helps with breadth and depth as well as sort of speed to purchase. Yeah, that is so true. Any predictions, any insights that are coming up that you think, uh, I know obviously you haven't finished the survey yet, but anything that you think is, is coming on the horizon? I will be interested to see the things that we've talked about with buying committee speed to purchase. I'm also interested about how those different traits break down in the SMB segment versus the enterprise segment to see what does that really look different. And and frankly, those were some of my biggest takeaways from last year's report. You know, that startup is moving really quickly and they can get stuff done. They're a 50 person shop. Again, they should do that. But then you compare that to some feedback from software buyers at a 5,000 person enterprise and they're still moving. We're seeing their time to purchase condense and also them move faster. It's, you know, the future that we're headed into is pretty definite because enterprises always always going to be the laggard there. They're moving just as quick. I think that'll be interesting to watch as well. When you're asking these folks for time to close, is it 
like when they sign the docs or is it pay? Because I know that every single big company that we work with just throws up their hands and they're like, yeah, procurement's just like a nightmare. So I don't know when you're going to get through that, but don't worry, we'll figure it out. Because I think if it's when they close the contract, I think that that's also getting way faster. But in terms of going through procurement, I think we're still spinning our wheels probably a little bit. I don't know that we have that exact data, but I think you're right. And that most folks are assessing it. Hey, when do we sign on the dotted line and say this is done versus when are all the uh, X's and O's in place and and, and taken care of there? So we'll see. It'll be interesting to watch that. But I think what you're talking about is still an area that a lot of folks are keen to to see move a little bit more efficiently. Yeah. The final point on this, and, and you brought it up, analysts, peer reviews, and then in the DMs, that I think that there's this sourcing that is happening in the DMs. Hey, who did you all use for this? What's your HR software? Do you like it? Then there's also the sourcing on the peer sites. Like, hey, just who's the top rated, right? Hey, let's look at the magic quadrant. Like, who are we looking at? And I think that now the triangulation of all these things is coming into focus. And like I said, it's just the slides on the slide deck, right? It's like, bang, here's how we stack up with our peers on G2. Here's how we look on the magic quadrant. Let's get into like features and benefits. Is this really solving like what we actually need? And I think that to me seems like the biggest catalyst to shorten sales cycles. The discovery work that you have to do now is less than it's ever has been because that information is just way easier to get. I think the time that it takes has shortened and it truly is at our fingertips. I even think back to Five, six years ago, before you had a lot of the the social resources, the Slack groups, the Facebook groups, whatever. And I by no means mean this as a knock on SEO, which I love, but it's like just search through Google to try and figure out to separate the wheat from the chaff there of like what is actually legitimate that I should be trusting versus what is this? And you end up on these SEO juice sites that have like no yep. authority versus ones that that are very trusted. That was something that honestly came through a lot in the feedback that we got from the survey last year is that like, yeah, I'm going to check a company's website. I'm going to check their social presence, but I don't give it the same level of trust that I would give to to other sites. 100%. Of course. That's what I mean about the features and benefits thing is like, I think what's more important there is is your website. And we we talk a lot about websites on the show because we have an amazing sponsor qualified who helps us create this podcast. The website is about your experience of how you can learn about the company and buy. And if the website is good and clean and you have an experience and you have chat functionality using qualified or something like that, and you can talk to a sales rep as soon as you're ready to buy, that experience makes you feel good of how the product will feel once you buy it. And it's the house for all your content, right? So it's like, how do you position your content? How do you have it for personas? Do you have it for use cases? Do you have a resource hub that makes sense? Do you have the SEO juiced content? That's what I think is so important in the process now. Whereas just like, hey, I'm just going to like look on a bunch of competitors' websites and compare it all. Okay, let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are your three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? 
this is going to be very much informed by where I like to put my focus and my team's focus. I would say one area right now that's going to be a little bit counterintuitive that I would absolutely fight tooth and nail to keep there is is in-person events. We've so few of those in the past two years that every opportunity that we have to connect in person with customers and prospects is very valuable. In-person events are certainly not as cost efficient as virtual ones, but I think that they've got a very tangible value there. So that's my number one. My number two is going to be a broader comms or PR budget. It doesn't mean that you're going out and having necessarily to hire an agency to do PR. It may bring that to life, but it's that there's some focus on what's your corporate message? How are you going to market with that? How are you staying relevant? And that can can take shape in a number of different ways, depending on what the company is. The last one for me, and this could come to life in sort of organic or paid, but, but I think social is an area where just depending on what your go-to-market strategy is and who you're trying to reach, that there's still, even in this day and age, a lot of value on social. So for us, that comes to life. And LinkedIn is, is just a great channel and somewhere that we can reach our customers and prospects efficiently and at scale. That's what we see. I mean, we see LinkedIn is is a massively, I mean, these type of series that you're getting video content specifically on LinkedIn performs like 10 times more better results posting videos on LinkedIn that's that are good I should specify that are produced high quality video and that's what we've seen I think especially when you're in that b2b marketing b2b software side it's just a lot of folks are there they're in that mindset they're ready to engage and that's just not true for if you're talking video going to YouTube I'm not saying there's not value there there's obviously a huge scale but it's harder to reach folks in that same mindset so I am curious How much do you think about G2's brand as it relates to the consumer side versus G2's brand as it relates to your product? I think it's a trap that marketplaces can fall into very easily of saying, hey, our real revenue drivers are the software vendors of the world that are there. And so they're the ones who sign the annual contracts and we need to go make sure they're happy. But it's very much sort of a, a virtuous cycle there. Those folks are going to lose interest, not see value if we can't keep growing the other side of the marketplace. So helping bring those software buyers in. And so reaching into new pockets of software buyers, new software across new geos and at different sizes and scale. That's really important to us. We've on the marketing side here at G2, we have a a user lifecycle team that sits alongside us. So we're doing not only demand gen outreach towards the software sellers that I mentioned, but we've got folks who are there making sure that we're supporting, that we're bringing in, and that we're engaging with the software buyers who really power the flywheel, so to speak, there. Yeah, I mean, it's so interconnected, right? I'd imagine, obviously, you work closely with the demand team on the consumer side. How do you think about crafting those type of campaigns? Like, what's what would goal of a campaign like that? I would say we work hand-in-hand hand with both groups. It would be tough to do them holistic in the sense of we're going to go to market with both a seller and buyer campaign. And this is where brand becomes sort of a glue is that we make sure that the way that we're presenting ourselves is yeah. cohesive as is the same that we're not. This is our identity to software buyers. And this is our software sellers. There's a different value prop, obviously, yeah. for those folks, but we shouldn't be a different G2 for those two folks. It should be the same site. And frankly, what's unique for us and the folks that are there are also turning to us to look for, hey, we need to onboard this, this new HR software. And you really helped us hone in on the right areas there. So 
I think for more than anything, it's not, well, how do we do it together and more just make sure that G2, the brand shines through to both of those. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think for us, it's about just making sure that circle is continuing to extend and that folks can go to us and know that they can trust us and that we're being transparent and what we're providing and highlighting there. And that holds true no matter what side of the marketplace that you're talking to. Let's go to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, your competitors, or anyone else. Have you had a memorable dust-up in your career? I'm definitely the peacemaker type. So that's typically how I personally operate. I've been able to avoid most of those. So we collaborate closely with our sales team, get along great there. So I can't point to a memorable dust up during my time here. I would just say in general, as a marketer, the two areas that that I'm always keen to make sure we're seeing eye to eye are with the finance side. So making sure there's no surprises there in terms of what's happening, what's going on, that there's no budget that unexpectedly shows up that they weren't expecting. And so building up that relationship is important to me. And then I think maybe, I know I said two, but I'm going to add, I'm going to add, uh, depending on what the organization is, two more that I think are important to avoid those dust-ups. One is legal, making sure that if we're doing something, broader campaign, something like a need activation, that we've got the right buy-in from our legal side, that there's no surprises and getting called into the principal's office there is no fun. And then lastly, it depends on the organization, making sure that design was sort of bought into whatever marketing had planned. So while I can't can't say like, oh, this is the major dust up that I've had. It's to me like creating that great sort of rapport and good cross-functional working relationships with finance, legal, and design have been kind of the keys of my, my marketing career so far. Let's get to our final segment, quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers, just like conversational marketing with Qualified. You can talk to somebody quickly if you go to qualified.com. Qualified prospects are on your website right now, and you can talk to them quickly. Quick and easy, just like these questions. Go to qualified.com to learn more quick hits. Palmer, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, what's a hidden talent or skill that's not on your resume? I really love working and building teams. So I would say that's something that's not necessarily a skill you can list there, but I love. Do you have a favorite book, podcast, TV show that you've been checking out recently? I've got two that that I'm in the midst of watching. Uh, Under the Banner of Heaven on on Hulu has been a, been a good one, based off the John Krakauer book. And then also Peaky Blinders season six just started. That's a guilty pleasure of mine. I don't know, nothing guilty about it, it's just a pleasure <laughs> of mine. And my favorite book is a book called Confederacy of Dunces. That's a novel set in New Orleans, and I was recently in New Orleans, so it inspired me to pick it back up and read it for the the third or fourth time. Do you have a non marketing hobby that maybe sort of indirectly makes you a better marketer? I'm a big sports fan, so love the Atlanta Braves, love watching international soccer. And I'd like to think that there's an aspect of putting myself as like a sports fan and like how you organize a team and focus on different efforts that like, it's not a one-to-one marketing thing, but it, it helps me think about utilizing skills and setting up a team for success. Palmer, last questions. If you weren't in marketing, what do you think you'd be doing? 
I think in another life, I would have come back as someone on the talent recruiting HR side. I love that aspect of the job. And I get to do a lot of that on the marketing side. But I think if things had gone a little bit differently, I could have ended up on that side. Final piece of advice for a first time VP of brand trying to figure out brand marketing. You learn by doing. And so don't be scared to act and, you know, size it right so that you're not necessarily staking your entire job or the entire future of the marketing department on what you're doing. But feel free to lean into to what you think would work and go try that and go back three months later, figure out what worked and what didn't, and then iterate and do more. Well, everybody go check out g2.com. If your company's profile is not good enough, then definitely improve that. Palmer, any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Thanks for having me on. We'll have the new software buyer behavior report out in September. Our plan is to debut it at uh, the Saster cool. annual conference, and then we'll, we'll release it on our website right after that. So uh, pencil that in for September and excited to uh, to share that with the, the broader SaaS awesome. world. Thanks, Palmer. We really appreciate you coming on. ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to qualified.com to learn more.